Good morning. Welcome. It's a little glitchy, but I think you still got the point. Um, Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to James chapter 4. We're going to look really at the first 10 verses. I'm going to add those two verses that will really cover the following week uh, as its own, but just thought it'd be good to read those in context. Um, Real quick, before we we get to uh, the Word, um, just a bit of family business, and if, you, if you've uh, not been here before, um, when I say family business, that means that those who are committed to this body, I'm, I'm really addressing you. That doesn't mean you're on the outside of the family. That just means I don't have an expectation for you or, or uh, importance in that for you to, to hear. So you get to sit back be like, you're, you're accountable for that, and I just get to sit back and relax. So just so you know the context of some of our family business. But a couple of you have asked me, um, about our window in uh, the commons, uh, several in our last service asked, and, and uh, over the last couple of weeks, there's been that curiosity. So just to share that with you, this week, um, that is getting replaced. There will be a window there. The wood is going away, thank God. Um, but unfortunately, none of that glass was tempered, but it has to be tempered as it goes up. Um, because that is up to code. So what that means is it's a lot more expensive than we thought, and that has to come out of pocket and above our normal uh, budgeted from giving. So here's what I want to ask you, uh, family, is that you'd pray uh, about considering giving uh, above your, your giving normally. And I, I'm not good at asking for money um, in this and, and asking you to pray about something like this. Um, but our council really encouraged me to. So I just wanted to encourage you to pray about that. If God leads you to help offset some of that cost, awesome. Um, if not, celebrate with us that we'll be able to see through that part of the building. So um, just wanted to share that with you. It's, a, it's a roughly an $800 cost. Uh, $785 is what it costs to get installed and everything. So if you want to help offset that, you can just put um, whatever you want to give towards that in an envelope and just specify um, and really, I'd encourage you more than just uh, giving quickly today, pray about that, maybe in the service and in the future. So I just wanted to share that with you. But if you have a Bible, turn to James chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 12 verses, and like I said, we're going to really uh, unpack the last two next week as we look at judgment and mercy. But this week, we're going to really focus on the 10 verses Um, But I'm going to read all the way through all 12 for the sake of context. So starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you, know that, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, as we've been going through the book of James, verse by verse, what I've shared with you before is that James is kind of that pastor, if you're like, man, I just want to punch to my soul, he's your guy, okay? He's not just going to fluff you up and give you just empty encouragement, but he's really saying, here's the issue, let's address it. But really, as we look at this this morning of worldliness and godliness, it really becomes encouraging, It really becomes freeing. And James opens up with this passage, not so much in an encouraging way, but an honest way, really asking a question. What's what's causing all of these issues among you? What's causing the quarreling, the fighting? Well, he answers it already for you. He's not asking you to go away and think about it. He just says, it's you. It's the worldliness in you. It's not the world around you, but it's you choosing to live in the world and, and of the world, and it causes this war within you. So what we see in this text is that there's really two types of living that are counter to one another, that really cause a war and a fight with one another. As James says, there's worldliness, which really leads to a selfishness, producing all kinds of problems. And then there's godliness, that really this is the resolve, he says, that leads to harmony and humility and holiness. And so this war that is raging on in us, when when we as believers try to live in both these types of living, we cause this tension that we were never created to live in because we were never created to live according to worldliness, but to godliness. So not both, but just godliness. And And if our lives are not fixed on Jesus, here's the thing that I think is really important as followers of Jesus. If our eyes are not completely fixed on Jesus, our lives are not fixed on him, then we have a tendency to shift our focus really off of our Savior and onto ourself. And maybe for you, you're sitting there and going, I don't really do that. I love God. I serve God. You're human, so you do this. And, and here's some examples of, of, of how you may handle things that just kind of prove that sometimes we get our focus shifted off of our Savior and onto self. I mean, think of uh, approaching someone that you want for them to do things in a certain way, say, or act in a certain way. How you approach that. And I'm not just talking about your kids or your, your, your siblings or, or your closest friends, but everyone, how you approach them. Think about how you approach the person who doesn't know what to order. It, I mean, this one drives me nuts. We pull up to the, the coffee stand and go, what would you like? And, and the person's like, I, I, you know, I don't know. Oh, have you never seen one of these before? And I just go nuts, and I make it about me. And, and think about how uh, you react to a person with a Bluetooth. Don't ask me why this is in here, but these people drive me nuts. Those people with those little Bluetooths, and not to get really intimate, but I have been in a bathroom before where I thought a guy was engaging in conversation with me, so out of courtesy, I said hello back, and he looked at me like I was stupid because he was talking to someone else on a Bluetooth, and I just went crazy. Think about these. Slow drivers uncomfortable church chairs, tapping. I mean, I grew up as kind of like a drummer and there was tapping all the time and my parents were going nuts and crazy. Noisy eaters. These guys or these gals drive you nuts. Think about that. Dishes in the sink. 
Some of this is getting personal. Talkative people, and especially talkative people who don't realize why they don't have many people to talk to because they're just always talking. Think of commercials. I mean, now our culture is to the place where it's so much about us that you can pay more money for a subscription of something without commercials. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I, I hate commercials, so I totally paid for that. I was totally that person who's like, oh, that's so good. I hate those commercials. But think about whining, how you react to these things, how you respond to these things, because how you feel about all of this is about you. How you respond and how you react to this. And so James really addresses all of this, of this worldliness saying it's about me, it's, it's all about how I feel, this selfish pursuit. He really points out in this that worldliness is really an opposition to godliness. And James says that the issue of worldliness comes from that war within us, meaning it's the war of our, of our hearts that causes war in the, in the church, causes war in the community surrounding. So it's our desire for things to satisfy us. It's the desire not, not to be at war, but it causes us to be at war because we're making it about us. And so when we view others, when we view all other people believing that we're the point, we make it about us. We, we believe that we're the point, and that affects how we view others, how we walk into relationships. But, but let me just be honest with you. The truth is, it's not about you. It's not about you, and it's not about me. But this is why many people are leaving the church. They keep leaving the church and saying, I, you know, I wasn't fed there. I, I didn't really like how this was. This didn't fit me. Now, there are some legitimate reasons why people leave. There are some legitimate reasons why people walk into a different community. But also, I think there's some aspect where we've made it about us. And, and I would guess that, that at least 50%, at least half of everyone in the world really lives their life with the unwritten statement that I will choose what seems to offer me the greatest happiness. Whether we want to or not, I'm going to choose what works best for me. But this doesn't work as a follower of Christ. If you've never heard this verse, this, this doesn't work because Jesus said when inviting people to follow after him in Luke 9, 23, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So it being about you is not going to work. It being about ourselves is going to be exhaustive. But when we choose to follow Jesus, it's the daily denial of making it about ourselves. And I think one of the most gripping, struggling, uh, just major issues of, of sometimes for us as human beings in following Jesus is our pride. I think this is a common issue, and, and not the good self-esteem, like I take pride in this. I take pride in my family, in my son. I'm, I love that little guy. I'm proud of him. I take pride in being his dad. I'm not talking about that kind of pride. I'm, take, I'm talking about the, I can do it all by myself because I'm that awesome pride. That everyone should come to me. I don't extend to them because I'm that cool. No, you're really not. No, we've talked about this. And so, as I shared with you from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, that quote in his book, Life Together, in confession, there occurs a breakthrough to the cross that the root of all my sin is pride. 
And so he says, really, what, what's going on there in the heart, what, whatever it is, it, it's coming back to pride. And so one of the things we really talked about last week when we talked uh, uh, about false wisdom is this, this kind of pride really comes from a false wisdom that's boasting in what is earthly. It's not boasting in godliness. It's, it, this pride comes of welling up in us our desire to, I'm going to live according to me. Even sometimes, with, and it's unintentional. Because I think there are ways where you and I are not seeking out godliness. We're seeking out a type of worldliness. But, but let's get real for a second. What I said last week to you is if, is if you are so full of yourself, there's no room to be full of Christ in you. And so we really need to understand, for us to pursue godliness means we need to really reject, not just set aside, but reject worldliness. And so James just doesn't leave out anything. He really throws the punches. If you're going, man, that's heavy right at the beginning. It is because James is saying, you need to be intentional with this. He's saying, you need to understand this opposes a life lived in Christ. And so for us to pursue godliness really means that we then are walking in grace and humility. In verse five, it says that he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And see, we don't understand jealousy. We think of it more on a human level. So for us to imagine that God is jealous just really seems kind of petty and and kind of seems confusing sometimes on our human level. In fact, C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia and, and great other books, before he was a believer, one of the things he said was that to him it seemed that God was like an old nagging woman always wanting and needing affection and attention. It's all about me. Just pay attention to me because he didn't understand. And later, after becoming a believer, choosing to follow Christ and live a life of godliness, C.S. Lewis then, then realized that God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's infinite, and he's a perfect creator. And by being a perfect creator, he created all things for his glory. And although we've gone outside of that and begun to mess that up through sin, God desires that we would come near to him. And C.S. Lewis just realized that this is the God that created him, a God that's not jealous of him, but for him for his whole self. And so C.S. Lewis and and what we can gather from this and and agree upon is that God is not jealous of you. God is jealous for you. And I think that distinction of wording is really important because when, when I went and researched and did some time in my notes, one of the most frustrating, daunting, ridiculous articles was of Oprah saying she was sitting in a teaching where a pastor literally was sharing this text. And as he was sharing this text, she said, man, a, a God that's jealous of me is no God at all. And so then Oprah went on to say, I'm good without but I'll still add some. That's ludicrous. That's stupidity. And, and, and so what we need to see here is that God is not jealous of you. God is jealous for you. When you and I are living a, a life of worldliness, God is not wanting nothing to do with you. God is yearning for you to walk in the life that he laid out before for you. 
And so God's jealousy for us is for us to walk not in a life of worldliness, not a pursuit of ourselves, but of a pursuit of him. That we'd walk in the life that he planned beforehand, the life laid out in him. And so he says, James says here, draw near to God that he would draw near to you. I think a great illustration that just I didn't plan, I didn't write, it just happened before me Friday night was, was that I was sitting on the floor with my son, Micah, and I said, I love you, Micah. And he crawled up to me, and for the following five minutes, and if, if any of you don't know my son, my son is a lot like me, which means a very short attention span. And for that to happen, for him to sit at my feet for about five minutes was a big deal. He just sat there and played, not sitting at me. He was just sitting with me, just wanted to be near dad. And then just got up for a moment, gave me kisses. It was awesome. We high-fived because that's what guys do after kisses. You know, it balances things out. And then he sat back down, continued to play, and then noticed something off in the distance. And so he crawled away and, and hung out, and I just shifted a little bit to, to relax, put my back up against the couch, but I never moved. And he looked back thinking I was gone, and he started to cry and just going, what, what's wrong? We're at a distance now. I never moved. He did. And so I just told my son, hey, hey, I love you. Come here. Come here. It, yeah, to draw near. Come here. Come over with me. But but catch that, I never left. So I think for some of us, we, we feel at that disconnect with God and we don't get the draw near peace. That God never left, we did. Constantly throughout scripture, we see this pursuit of God, not in his movement of changing placement because God never left. He may turn away and, and not see the sin that we are choosing to live in, but he never left. And so what James is saying here is drawn near because your God never left. Your God is here. And I love verse six because those of us that really feel like we're struggling with worldliness but don't want to be in pursuit of it, James doesn't give a list of to-dos, which I think is an easy tendency for us sometimes, an easy burden for us to take on. He doesn't give a, a new method of works. Here he says, God gives more grace. Humble yourselves. God gives more grace. And so God's spirit woos us to him as we recognize our sin, recognize the worldliness in us, and we humble ourselves in genuine repentance. And, and God doesn't look and go, see, I told you so. He says, here's more grace. I love you. I'm here. I never left but it seems too many times conversions take place without a deep repentance. I think sometimes it's really easy to have the lights low, the music loud, and the hands raised. And it's just a vocal response. It's not a heart change. And so we see that really the, the point of us drawing near to God is that we need to give up our own way. We need to deny self. We need to humble ourselves and allow God to do the work, which really often requires just this painful self-discovery and really a heartfelt repentance. See, for me, I feel like over this weekend, God's been just showing me things that are not 
of him. Attitude stuff, approach, hurts, pains, some bitterness in my own life. And, and, and as I've just spent some time with God in that, bringing that to him, I feel like he's pointing out in me some, some self-discovery, not to make it about me, but to acknowledge what's going on in me so that it can later from there be Christ in me. That it would be a heartfelt repentance saying, I don't want to live according to that bitterness. I don't want to live according to that selfishness. I want to pursue you. But I think sometimes we, it's not a heart thing. It's just a lip service. And for it to be a heart thing, it needs to be all of our junk just laid at the foot of the cross because he gives more grace. And so God lovingly, what I've just experienced over the last couple of days, God lovingly just has been stripping back layers upon layers. This isn't me, this is you, and it's gotta go. And I think what God does in that, when we submit to that, that doesn't become something burdensome, it becomes freeing. Because God who is holy, then we see out of his holiness the process where he is drawing us to be holy, to be set apart, And it's really through submission. And so we see that pursuing godliness really means submitting to God. In verse 8 through 10, we see the really the core theme of this text and the resolve for how to live out a life of godliness. And not not as a judge, but as someone submitted to God who's the true judge. And so in verses 8 through 10, James releases, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, repent, humble yourselves, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. He will hold you up. He will redeem you. And in the New Testament, wherever the word submit occurs, the word is translated from the Greek, and bear with me because I'm not Greek, hupotasso. And, and those two words, that first part, hupo, means under. And the tasso means to arrange. Now, in order for us to submit to God, what it means is we need to humbly position ourselves under his leadership and arrange our priorities and our lives with his priorities and his life. And so there's really two parts there to submitting to God. It's, it's under his leadership and it's arranging ourselves. Not, not that it's about me, but it's about him. And really what this process becomes, because it's not just instant when we convert, it's, it's the process which is called sanctification. I've shared with you this terminology before, and I'll continue to bring it up again and again, because at the moment of conversion, you're not perfect, you're forgiven. At the moment of that repentance and that life change, you are never going to be perfect. If you were at the moment of conversion and praying that prayer, speaking that out, you'd die because then you go to heaven because you're perfect. You're ready, for, you're, you're ready for heaven, but you're not there yet. And so here on earth, it becomes this process of working out our salvation through sanctification. And sanctification really means to be set apart, to be holy and to be active in that process of repentance, reconciliation, and relationship. And so really back in, in the day, the, a group called the Puritans, who were not perfect by any means because they really gained their name one of the ways by really desiring to take out of the Bible the, the purest text, not, not of self-interpretation, but of, of pure text, but still got things wrong. 
So here's these guys that really desire to live according to the word, but had slaves. Desire to live according to the word, but really were involved in that movement of of killing people they thought were witches in the Salem witch trials. So here's these guys who are not living perfectly, but, but really desiring to understand sanctification. And one of the things that they really wrote out that John Calvin later took was the two aspects of sanctification, which are mortification and vivification. And just a theological moment here for us all. I don't, I don't expect for you to retain all this, but I think this process is important. That mortification is really that first step of, of killing the sin, the denial of yourself, because sanctification begins at mortification. And then as that begins and we move on in that process, it's the process of sanctification through vivification, which is living a godly life, virtuous walking, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, that that someone living out in sanctification is someone who's active in the Spirit. This is what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 8, 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is death is life and peace. See, what I've shared with you before is one of the most biblical principles is that whatever controls and shapes your life is really, in effect, the God that you're worshiping. Whatever's shaping and controlling you, whatever you're allowing to mold you is really, in effect, the God that you are worshiping. And so as we seek to submit to God, what we need is to genuinely draw near to God, to draw near to him, confessing our sin, repenting, turning away from worldliness and submitting to him. No longer living worldly, but, but living godly. Not, not perfectly, but faithfully. And as, uh, as of 8.09 this morning, that was where I was gonna conclude. And just uh, in prayer, I felt like God was really laying a, a verse of conclusion on my heart of Mark 12, verse 30 and 31, where Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment that is greater than these. And this is really what Jesus is saying out of Deuteronomy 6, verse four and five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now here's what's interesting to understand is that while Deuteronomy chapter 6, those verses 4 and 5, lists three aspects of loving God, Jesus lists four. Jesus adds, with all your mind. And so what he's saying is, there needs to be in here a transformation of your thinking. You can imagine the people, the Jewish people hearing this in their tendency of just routine. Going, okay, yeah, yeah, I've got to repeat this. And in fact, in their culture, they would repeat this throughout the day. They'd repeat this in the morning, they'd repeat this in the afternoon, and they would repeat this in the evening. And so out of routine, Jesus is really saying, with all your mind, that there would be transformation. So let's remember that in the midst of struggling with worldliness, in the midst of our routine, wherever we're, wherever we're at, James doesn't give us a list, to do's, a list of to-dos. He doesn't give us a new method of works. Here he says, God gives more grace. Draw near 
to God. That we would begin to abandon worldliness and begin to transition into transformation by humbling ourselves, by receiving grace and pursuing a life of godliness. Because it isn't love me or else, it's pursue me as I have continually pursued you. So church, if we are ever to live a life of holiness, not in worldliness, but in godliness, that's lived out in the process of sanctification, it has to begin with this commandment. For us to really break free of routine and begin to understand that at the core, that there's no other commandment greater than this, for us to love God with all we are and to love others. Let's pray.